This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the second weekend of November 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Sutherland Springs grapples with a mass shooting that claimed more than two dozen lives. We're a small community first. But the most important thing is we're family. Being undocumented and black in Austin. I love this country and it just hurts because this country hates me and I don't know why. And trying to get Austin kids to grow up into scientists or engineers. Because if it was in science, it would kind of be confusing. But here it shows you everything that's happening and what is going to happen. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. God Almighty, to His Son Jesus Christ, that the healing process will begin. This is Mike Gonzalez from Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. That with time, Sutherland Springs and its community will be stronger than ever. And so we ask that you unite with us tonight as we sing, as we pray, as we unite to remember the families who have been taken from us. But rejoice in the heavens tonight with the Almighty God. That was one of several prayer vigils this week around the area of Sutherland Springs, where there was a mass shooting last weekend, the small town just about 70 miles south of Austin. But the largest community gathering was Wednesday night at a high school football stadium in nearby Floresville, and that included Vice President Mike Pence. Texas Public Radio's Joy Palacios was there. You are perfect in all of your ways. On a field that's normally the site of Friday night football games, family members of Sutherland Springs shooting victims were embraced by music and words of support from Vice President Mike Pence and Governor Greg Abbott. And even though anguish and sorrow hang over the community, we will not be overcome by evil. Together we will overcome evil with good. Vice President Pence recounted the lives of those killed at First Baptist Church. Among them, Haley Kruger, who even though just 16 years of age, already knew she wanted to be a neonatal nurse and care for the most vulnerable in society. Shani and Robert Corrigan, a 30-year veteran of the United States Air Force. Two high school sweethearts whose son had just passed away just a year ago. The stands were full. At least 2,000 people came to pay their respects. Many from Wilson County, others from San Antonio. Some lifted their hands in prayer and hugged one another. Carla Sikama is from Floresville. We're a small community first, but the most important thing is we're family. We're family. You know, you can't even go to our local grocery store right now because an employee there is no longer there. We lost someone there. So it's affected our community throughout. Sikama is an ICU trauma nurse at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. She's taken care of eight of those injured in Sutherland Springs. They're strong, they're survivors, they're prayerful. It's just, it's incredible. But at the same time, to see the victims still feeling like they're right there and it's still happening all over again, it's scary. She says her two seven-year-old daughters lost a friend from their second grade class. It's a difficult conversation she never thought she'd have, but she tells her girls their friend is with God. Because 
that we're Christians. We know that there's a heaven, and we know that at some point in time, we're all going to go to see Jesus. There's been a prayer vigil every night since Sunday, when more than 10% of tiny Sutherland Springs' population was either killed or injured. Shirley Philateo's one of the roughly 400 people who live there. She says she's been to three vigils so far. Our community still needs to be healed. Philateo lives about a half mile from the church and says the shooting has left a massive hole in the town's heart. Something like that is so evil. Happened to so many good people that were worshiping God. I mean, you can't get even, you can't get more evil than that. Family members of the victims didn't speak at the vigil, though about two dozen congregated at one end of the football field while the vice president spoke. Frank Pomeroy is pastor of First Baptist. He wasn't there on Sunday, but his 14-year-old daughter Annabelle was. She died in the shooting. He says Wednesday's vigil was proof that despite the immeasurable loss they've all suffered, the community's faith is strong. It showed the, the fact that we live in a country that though there, there are many who try to say that we're secular, we, are, we live in a country that still comes together and prays to an almighty God. While they mourn, First Baptist Church members are wondering what will happen to their church. And we're playing it day by day right now. Pomeroy says he's not sure what they'll do with the building. There's too many that do not want to go back into the, that oh. church. I think we'll probably turn it into some type of memorial for a while. Pomeroy says he still plans to hold services on Sunday to help Sutherland Springs residents draw strength from one another and from God. But for now, at least, it'll take place at the community center. Joey Palacios reporting. One of the stories you may have not heard in the coverage of the mass shooting in Sutherland Springs is about the storytellers themselves. Members of the media from across Texas and around the country have flooded into this small Texas town with a population of, of several hundred because they're trying to tell us about the tragedy and what happened and how it's affecting people. But at least one journalist who was among the first to arrive there says the people of Sutherland Springs deserve an apology from the media. Reporter Lauren McGahey wrote an open letter in the Dallas Morning News saying just that. Hi, Lauren. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Tell me about when you first arrived in Sutherland Springs. Sure. Uh, I arrived uh, pretty early on Sunday afternoon. You know, this was probably two, three, four hours after the shooting because I live pretty close. I live about an hour and a half away. And there were already other media there, but it you know, it was a pretty small crowd at that point. But by the end of the night, the media presence had really exploded. And then over the next couple of days... It almost looked like there were as many of us as there were people in the town. It's a small town, only about 600 people. And so why do the people of Sutherland Springs deserve an apology from the media? Well, you know, I feel like any number of people that were there could have written this and probably were thinking about it. I talked to a lot of other reporters that were there that were feeling really uncomfortable with our presence. And, you know, we discussed the fact that when something like this happens in a big city, it's it's traumatic for anyone who has lost someone to be asked to relive their story. But when it's a town of this size and we're, we just so inundate them, you start to feel 
pretty sick with your sheer presence there. I mean, even if you weren't walking up to people and knocking on doors, even if you just stayed in in one part of town and, and kind of tried to stay out of people's way, you were still there. You were still an outsider and a stranger. And I just started to get really uncomfortable the longer I was there. And I know a lot of other people did too. And I felt like it's incumbent upon the media. This is our job and we do this and we hope to do it right. But it's also incumbent on us to do it better. And the next time something like this happens in a place that is so small, maybe we should talk about how to ensure that we're not doubling down on these people's trauma by just flooding into their space when they're trying to pick up the pieces. What has been the effect of that on the people who live in Sutherland Springs? What's happened? So some people really did want to talk, and you could tell that it was cathartic, and maybe each time they told the story, it was a little easier. But frankly, the town kind of shut itself in the more of us that arrived, and you started seeing that there were so few actual people out and about, and it was just journalists. And it it became pretty apparent that, you know, the people that didn't need to be out and in the path of us were either in their homes or someplace else. To me, it was pretty obvious, and I know to a lot of other people it was too. But at the same time, the story needs to be covered. I mean, we can't ignore it. And I know you're not suggesting for a minute that it should not be covered. But how do you think the media could still tell the story to the nation without causing any harm to the people who live in Sutherland Springs in this small town that's just gone through this horrific event? You know, I'm frustrated with myself, frankly, because I don't have an answer, but I feel like it's better to raise the question and start talking about it than to just pretend like everything was fine. You know, I hope in writing the piece that people take it and truly think about it and not just say, oh, I'm glad someone wrote this or said this because I was feeling this. I, I hope that people are are actually thinking about how we can do this better. I don't know if that means smaller groups of people. You know, you don't have to send 10 reporters. You can send one. A lot of people have mentioned pool reporting, which is what we do a lot of times in politics. If you're, you know, if you're following the president, mm-hmm. they'll have a smaller group of designated people. I don't know if any of those things will work, but I think we need to be talking about it. And I've gotten a lot of emails from people in the town that I didn't even talk to when I was there, thanking me for writing it. So it was something real that they experienced. And we need to remember that Lauren McGahee is a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. She is based in Austin. You can read her open letter to the people of Sutherland Springs at dallasnews.com. Thanks, Lauren, for your time. Thanks for having me. Texas voters added seven amendments to the state's constitution on Tuesday by wide margins of up to 70 points. Texas lawmakers send about five to 10 constitutional propositions to voters during each legislative session, which occurs every two years. And many race through the legislative process with little to no public debate. So that led a KUT listener to send in this question through our AT Explained project. 
The listener is Caroline Ring, and the question is read by Caroline Covington. No, no relation, by the way. <laughs> ben Philpott is KUT senior editor, and he has been looking in to this question. How's it going, Ben? Hey, pretty good. What's the answer? There are basically two tracks to this answer. Okay. One is politics, and one is kind of the mechanics of state law and the state constitution. Let's start with the mechanics of it then. Yeah, so, you know, if something is in the Constitution, if you try to pass a law that goes against what's in the Constitution, that's why it's unconstitutional. Right. So you have to, if you want to change the Constitution, you have to do a constitutional amendment. I voters talk, have to approve the and amendment. And voters have to approve that. I talked to uh, Hugh Brady over at the UT Law School. He heads up the legislative lawyering clinic there. He talked about how a lot of this, you've got to look back to that 1876 original Texas Constitution as to why you have to add things now here in 2017. So the Texas Constitution, uh, which was written in 1876 and has been amended regularly since then, uh, prohibits a lot of the activity that voters were asked to authorize. So there, when it was written in 1876, there was a prohibition on gambling. And the Proposition 5, which would allow the sport teams to conduct raffles, and the Proposition 7, which permitted the credit unions to award random prizes, those are considered forms of gambling in Texas. And so the voters had to approve them. Otherwise, they would have been illegal. What about the political reason behind all of these constitutional amendments we have in Texas every couple of years? Yeah. So over the last few legislative sessions, you've sometimes seen the lawmakers specifically on things like transportation dollars and this uh, large $2 billion program for uh, water in the state, helping to shift water from one part of the state to the other, helping to build reservoirs to save up water for future droughts. Mm -hmm. Both of those things cost a lot of money. But instead of having the lawmakers appropriate that money through the regular channels of, uh, you know, the budget process, they essentially said, no, you, the voters, we think this is really important, but you, the voters, you tell us that you agree with that by allowing us to do this. Now, for the water thing, also, they were asking to sell bonds. The original Constitution said you can't sell more than $200,000 worth of bonds. Okay. So this was a $2 billion bond project they did have to ask. But again, it, it was something that you could have done through law and they decided no let's let's make this something that the voters kind of rubber stamp it. and here's Hugh Brady again on that topic it is a way for the legislature to say we didn't add to the debt that you must now pay off with taxes uh, you voted to tax yourself and I think that's a pretty compelling argument for legislators uh, to make when they're challenged at the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce as to why state taxes are so high we're not going to be appropriating your money. It's the voters deciding. Right. It's democracy. And it, right. And as we just heard from uh, Hugh Brady, you know, this is a way for lawmakers to say, no, 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 I didn't raise your taxes. You raised your taxes. <laughs> All right. KUT senior editor Ben Philpot answering a question we received today through our AT Explained project. If you have a question you want answered, head on over to KUT.org where you can submit it. Ben, thanks for your time. Thank you. Now, in this election, voters also approved five of five school funding questions in Central Texas. The Austin Independent School District, Lake Travis ISD, Leander ISD, and Lago Vista ISD all had bond questions, which used tax money for various renovations and technology upgrades. AISD said 
their bond could be approved without having to raise rates. Of course, if it wasn't approved, they would have been able to lower rates theoretically. EANS ISD lowered its tax rate, and that was perhaps not surprisingly one in a landslide. 90% voted in favor. And I think part of that is because they used a funding mechanism known as golden pennies. I won't get too much into it. But basically, they were able to lower their rate because they paid off some of their bonds, but take in an additional $3 million a year by increasing their maintenance and operations tax rate. Lower overall tax rate, but more money coming in. That's how you get a 90% electoral victory. Now, voters in Travis County uh, approved a bond package totaling almost $185 million. Again, pretty wide margin. More than 73% of voters cast a ballot in favor of the bond package, which was divided into two propositions. Proposition A, more than $93 million, will go toward expanding and adding roads and improving drainage systems and flood-prone areas, as well as building new bridges and bike lanes and sidewalks. A lot of the projects are east of I-35 and aim to address long-standing concerns over the safety and getting around. Uh, the biggest ticket item is an $11.8 million expansion of Harold Green Road from State Highway 130 to Colony Boulevard in Austin. Proposition B and the Travis County bond, that was more than $91 million in funding for county parks and green space. Most expensive project in that package is the construction of the $23.5 million Bee Creek Sports Complex, and it'll have synthetic turf fields and a hike and bike trail, picnic areas and playgrounds. Proposition B also includes more than $11 million for the county to buy new parkland and almost $17 million for conservation easements. Those try to protect natural resources and environmental features. Travis County does not plan to issue all of this debt at once. But over the next few years, if you own an average-priced home, they say you can expect to pay about $24 more per year in property taxes. The impact, of course, will vary on uh, based on home value. Travis County has an online calculator you can check on their website, or we have a link to it at KUT.org if you want to estimate the impact on the individual property tax bill. In Austin, the process of adding a garage apartment or even remodeling your home is notoriously difficult. A lot of people have complained about hefty fees, long wait times for city permits. As KUT's Saida Hassan reports, the Austin City Council is trying to make that process easier. The council took an important step to streamlining the process Thursday. It passed the Family Homestead Initiative. It calls for the city to identify all of the regulations and costs associated with expanding or remodeling a home. Councilmember Dalia Garza sponsored the resolution. And my hope is, is that when we look at that whole process together, we see the difficulty that, that homeowners face and that we, we decide to change some of those and create a more streamlined process. Garza says she wants to create a separate permitting process for homeowners because they shouldn't have to contend with the same regulations large developers do. And she stressed her resolution is not meant to be a criticism of the city's Development Services Department, which has been subject to heavy public scrutiny in recent years. Councilmember Allison Alter joined Garza in supporting the measure. The Family Homestead Initiative allows us to explore ways to give power back to the average homeowner and to make it easier and less expensive to add housing that is in character with our existing neighborhoods and that allows our Austinites to age in place. 
The resolution notes that cost can be a major barrier for residents wishing to expand their homes, whether to rent out the space or house another family member. Austin resident Monica Brickley joined council members and other supporters at a press conference Thursday. She and her husband own a home in the Zilker neighborhood, and they built a second unit on the property for her mother to live in. Brickley says they weren't prepared for the tens of thousands of dollars in fees that came with the expansion. The process has been expensive, cumbersome, lengthy. There have been fees on top of fees that we couldn't imagine. And if someone actually sat there and added it up and imagined their family paying for it, it would the numbers would might actually make someone sick. Of course, anytime you bring up policies on land use and development, the conversation quickly goes to code next. That's the ongoing overhaul of Austin's land development code, which would change the rules for many types of construction. Council members are set to vote on adopting code next in April, but some groups are calling for a delay or even to put the new code to a vote by the public. And Councilmember Garza gets the connection with her resolution. Let's just assume nothing happens. Let's assume we have the exact same land code. We need a process that's streamlined for homeowners. So we're not trying to do this because of Code Next. We're doing this in spite of Code Next, I guess you could say. The council is set to get a progress report on the new rules by February. Saida Hassan, KUT News. That is the sound of students rallying outside the Austin office of U.S. Senator John Cornyn this week. The video was posted by United We Dream Austin, and it shows students from Travis High School and the University of Texas marching downtown in order to support Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That is the Obama-era program that allowed some people who were brought to the U.S. as children to avoid deportation. A lot of the immigration debate in the U.S., focuses on Hispanic migration and the southern border with Mexico. Most undocumented residents in the United States come from Mexico and Central America, according to the Migration Policy Institute. But KUT's Delia Jones reports on efforts to help another minority group that's trying to stay in the only country they've ever known. Everything's fit, so it's good. (laughs) Meet 21-year-old Aluwa Toyosi. She's a chemical engineering major with a concentration in textiles at UT Austin. But I just like to worry, I guess. She displayed a few of her clothing designs at an annual cultural show held by the Texas African Student Organization. Shusi says one day she wants to create wearable technology like mosquito-repellent clothing in malaria-prone places. She's set to graduate this semester and is looking for a job. But she needs a company to sponsor her. I had one interview, but the one thing that, like, when I was talking to recruiters that I kind of avoided was the whole sponsorship question. I kind of wanted them to like me first, you know, and then I'll bring up sponsorship. Aluwa Toyosi is one of 800,000 who's a part of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Her family came from Nigeria when she was three. Her father had a student visa, and later he got a job in Houston. But during the 2008 recession, he lost his job and his visa. My parents didn't really tell me that we were, that I was undocumented. And so like when I was filling all these forms out to apply for DACA, um, that's when I realized that, oh, this is different. Then this year, President Donald Trump announced his plans to end DACA. As Shusi began looking around for help to see how she could stay in the U.S., 
She had trouble finding a group to cater to her own needs. When they talk about undocumented immigrants, they don't think about black undocumented immigrants. That's when she met Deborah Alamu. She's with a group called Black. We felt that the need to pull something together that embraced both worlds of being undocumented and black and navigating living in the United States with those identities. Alamu's family is originally from Ethiopia. She says seeing black people being ignored in the immigration system led her to create UndocuBlack. It often feels like it is impossible to exist as a black undocumented person because there's, there are no checkboxes for you. The organization is like other immigration groups. It focuses on health, legal clinics, and informational sessions, but they purposely cater to black immigrants who speak a variety of languages. There are certainly black immigrants who speak Spanish, but there's a population that doesn't as well. So to find resources that are accessible to our communities has been an uphill battle. Those kind of barriers can create delays for many immigrants, especially those trying to tap into social services. Robert Painter is with the American Gateways, a nonprofit that provides legal services to low-income immigrants in Central Texas. Having culturally competent resources can be a challenge. I mean, because the vast majority of immigrants to the region come from from South America, Central America, and Mexico, a lot of the Maybe not so much the legal services, but other social services are more geared to that population. Painter says organizations need to do a better job at reaching out to smaller immigrant populations. So if we think that there is a particular community that is especially vulnerable to immigration enforcement because of the color of their skin, that's a problem that we ought to be paying attention to. A study by the Black Alliance for Just Immigration found that even though black immigrants only account for 7 percent of undocumented people in the country, they make up about 20 percent of the population at immigration detention centers. Alamu says that imbalance can also be found when looking at incarceration rates for black Americans. A lot of times people ask if citizenship is the goal and then what? And I say no, because you've got black citizens living in the United States who still don't have full dignity and full rights. For Aluatoyosi and other DACA recipients, the clock is ticking. Without congressional action, she could be deported. America is the only place I know. And I love this country and it just hurts because this country hates me and I don't know why. I'm always going to be limited because of my status and that just sucks. That just sucks. But she graduates from UT in a few weeks. And with that degree comes the possibility of a job offer and some hope. Talia Jones, KUT News. It's been about a week since open enrollment began for the Affordable Care Act. People who don't get health insurance from an employer can buy a plan through an online marketplace created by the law, Obamacare. And even though the federal government is doing a lot less this year to help people sign up or even let them know that enrollment has begun, KUT's Ashley Lopez reports there's actually been a dramatic increase. Foundation Communities is a group that's been helping people sign up for plans in the Austin area. Lately, their offices have been busier than usual. Yeah, this is all, it's all health insurance. 
That's Elizabeth Colvin. She runs the group's insurance program. Colvin says she's seen a big difference in signups this year compared to the last enrollment period. So in the first six days of this year, we enrolled about 850 individuals compared to about 300 individuals last year during the same time period. So we are seeing a big surge, which is wonderful, and that's what we want. Colvin says her group has been warning people for weeks to sign up earlier. She says she's glad it's worked. That's because Texans only have six weeks to get a plan this year. The last enrollment period was three months. Curtis Rausch is a self-employed musician in Round Rock. He signed up for a plan this week because he's traveling soon and didn't want to miss the short window for getting health insurance. Rausch says he didn't always care this much about health insurance. But this year I had a pretty big health scare. I had a heart attack this summer. Uh, at the age of 33, and with no prior um, signals that I would have one, um, you know, like I'm a, I'm a non-smoker, vegetarian, exercise, never been overweight. It's a total surprise. Roush says he feels lucky that he had a plan through the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare at the time. He says because of Obamacare, he could afford his trips to a cardiologist and all his medication. Roush says he was concerned a lot this year as he watched Republican efforts in Congress to repeal the law. So suddenly insurance is a very important thing for me. It's a critical thing for me. And uh, the few times this year where I felt like Obamacare was in jeopardy, uh, it felt like my own personal safety was in jeopardy. Rausch is relieved those efforts failed and he was able to get health insurance again this year. In fact, Rausch got married last weekend and was able to find a plan for the coming year with his wife. And like a lot of people, their Obamacare tax credit went up, so he's getting more help to pay for insurance. And uh, we're going to have better health insurance than last year and be able to save a little more money, so it's... We're in good shape. Central Health, the county's hospital taxing district, has also been helping people in the area sign up through a program called Enroll ATX. Officials there say enrollment has doubled in the first seven days compared to the last year. The last day to sign up for a plan is December 15th. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Getting kids interested in science, technology, engineering, math, also called STEM, it's been a focus of schools for years now. Decades even. Wednesday was National STEM Day. And a local indoor skydiving business celebrated by giving out free flights. KUT's Claire McInerney joined a group of students as they learned about the science behind flying. The group of fifth grade students from Camacho Elementary stand in an instruction room at iFly Austin. It's an indoor skydiving facility in northwest Austin. They're learning about proper form for their eventual flights from flight instructor Greg Levin. First, our feet are going to be nice and wide. Remember, that's going to give us lateral stability so we don't roll over, okay? The students are having trouble staying quiet and still while they get their instruction. They've been looking out onto the huge vertical glass tube that they'll be getting into later. There are giant fans that will push the air in the tube and them upwards, making them float. Mikkel Stevens peers out a window from the classroom. Um, I'm kind of scared. Like, I'm nervous and scared at the same time, but at the same time, I know it's going to be really fun. Camacho Elementary is in Leander ISD. iFly chose Camacho because it's a school with a lot of low-income kids. Teacher Holly Webb had to choose which students to bring. It, it was really hard to choose 25 different kids, but, I mean, we chose kids that may not have the opportunity to come here on a daily basis. And, you know, just so kids that, like, would really benefit from 
just this experience. So She's talking about flying in the wind tunnel, but also learning about the science behind how it works. Because throwing a human body on top of a huge fan involves a lot of physics which is where Nikki Prather comes in. So what the goal of the presentation is, is we talk about how the wind tunnel works, but we also talk about other science concepts that they've learned in school or maybe read in a textbook. Prather is the STEM educator at iFly. She sits the kids down before their flying lessons so they understand how it works. So we talk about all of those science concepts that are happening in the wind tunnel, um, just so they can kind of have a real-life experience of those physics concepts that seem kind of far-reached or unrelatable. Force, velocity, speed, her lesson changes depending on the age of the students. She says this lesson is important because it helps kids connect the dots between something cool like flying and science. And that context is helping them understand. Marcella Varela explains how the air will keep them afloat. That there was four fans that, and they're all on the top, and they, they, the air flows through vents, and then it comes up in the bottom. That way, That's how you hover or float. And Isabel Mondragon says it's easier to learn here than in a classroom. Because if it was in science, it would kind of be confusing. But here, it shows you everything that's happening and that what is going to happen. Once the kids have all the learning done, it's time to get ready to fly. Instructor Greg Levin gets the kids in bodysuits and goggles and explains how to insert foam earplugs. The way these work, the round end is going in your ear. All right, you're going to put one at a time between your fingers, roll them up really, really skinny like you're playing with your boogers. They put on their helmets, and he lines them up outside the tunnel. You guys ready to go? All right, come on out this way. Levin brings them in one at a time. He holds them inside the tube as they extend their arms and legs. Some kids flail around a little bit, and he signals how to get back in proper form. Some grin as they float around the chamber. Greg Levin held onto the kids for all of their flight, but Kaylee Looney was different. Her form was so consistent that he let go of her, and she floated around the tunnel on her own. How was it? He wasn't even touching you. You were floating all by yourself. Scary. What was so scary about it? I don't know. I just felt like I was just going to go up. Tomorrow's science lesson probably won't be so cool. Claire McInerney, KUT News. That is KUT Weekend for the second weekend of November 2017. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the fine folks who are members of KUT. They support us financially by making donations. If you want to join them and become a member yourself, you can do that at KUT.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or at weekend.kut.org. If you have any questions or comments, shoot me an email, nathan at kut.org, or ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUTNathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thanks again for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org.